Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out wrightfarmhousechurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. We'll start here in John chapter 7 and verse 37. It says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So doesn't that sound wonderful? Uh, like I said in my, in my text, my church text, you know, there could almost be in a Hallmark card. This rivers of living water will flow from within them. But, but it's, hard, it's hard to understand what he's talking about. When we, read, when we read passages like these, they sound nice, but sometimes we get lost in all of the nice language, and we have a hard time figuring out what exactly Jesus is offering. And, and Dad had a good illustration last week where he said, and you are in Allen. And then people were like, what? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's the same thing when you're in Christ. Anyways, I won't go into it. But we have a hard time figuring it out exactly what this nice language means sometimes. So we're going to examine it. But that all matters because we all know that there is, that there are people who are offering things in the name of Jesus that aren't the real thing. They offer, they offer salvation with, without any kind of repentance or commitment to Jesus whatsoever. Um, but those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus, we want to know what it is that he is offering to us when he says this amazing thing. Um, and there is a danger that as Christians who live in a relationship with Jesus, we will, we might, we would, we, we may lose the wonder and beauty of that relationship. And it becomes sort of ho-hum after a while. We, we know that after we become Christians, life goes on. Things return to normal, and we still have the we still have these same struggles that we did before. And it appears as though the beauty and the wonder can be lost just in a shuffle of of everyday life. Um, so let's think about this idea of rivers of living water. <clears throat> let's talk about what exactly Jesus is offering us and how that can deepen our perspective and make us into better people. So in John chapter 7 here, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, okay, for the, fe- for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, this was one of the three major feasts. I'm curious, does anybody know what the other two are the th- of the two major feasts? Passover. The Passover, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What was the third one? Just curious. It's, it's the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Booths, which we're, we're, we're in here. This is our context. We're in the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths right now. It was a time every year uh, when the Jews, they would live in tents for eight days. And they did this to commemorate 
a time when the Jewish nation was wandering in the wilderness before they came into the land of Canaan. They would live in these tents in Jerusalem, and there would be festivals, and and, and it was just a time of of joyous festivals. And in John chapter 7 here, one of the major undercurrents, one of the major underlying stories that that no one really knows is that, that no one really knows what to do about Jesus at this Feast of Booths. They don't know whether he's the Messiah or whether he's a liar, and there's a plot to murder him. And John highlights this division that he causes among the people in in John chapter 7. He even talks to his brothers. If you look in verse 5, they don't believe him. They don't believe in him as the Messiah. And eventually Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. So moving on here, um, backing up a little bit, in John chapter uh, 7 verse 14 it says, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? So they were amazed that Jesus could teach the way that he taught without ever going to these rabbinical schools that they were used to hearing these teachers come from. They would have taught him how to reason um, from these scriptures. And and we see some of the reactions to him in in verse 25 here. It says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And then in verse 31, still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And then in verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. There was a uh, a really tremendous ceremony that would go on during the Feast of Tabernacles. Each of the first seven days... <clears throat> where the people, they would come into the temple and they would have these palm branches and they would stand around the altar and the priest would go uh, from the altar walking under these palm branches and he would take a golden pitcher and, and he would go to the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and he would fill the golden pitcher with water. And as he came back into the temple with his golden pitcher just full of water, the crowd would begin to chant the words, these words here of Isaiah 12, verse 3. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would chant this as he would do this. Imagine that scenario in your head, okay? We're starting to feel the paint the pictures we've talked about. As they chanted this, the priest would approach the altar and he would pour, he would pour this water into the altar and all of this was a way of commemorating how God provided water in the desert. Provided water by Moses with the rocks. Do we remember that? It's God's provision that it is celebrated, right? The people would worship by remembering in this ceremony with water. And that helps us, that helps to give us some context to what is what is happening here. So in, in verse 37, going back to this, Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. I mean, he just 
says this in this cer- you know during the ceremony, right? So Jesus is saying this ceremony is not the source of true water. In John, if you go back a, a chapter in John chapter six, he's just said, "I'm the bread of life." Moses didn't give you the true bread when he gave you the manna in the desert. I'm the true bread. Here he says, I am the true water. I am what will truly satisfy you. And in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He says, if you come to me, you will fulfill these water scriptures. And then in verse 39, by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus is offering a life-giving, outward-flowing relationship. So, so we're going to expand on that. Let's talk about this idea of, of relationship. In verse 37, at the beginning here, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He says, Come to me in the sense that you want to begin a relationship with me. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He uses this image of water to describe this. Could it, could it be that he is referencing in Isaiah? Looked up a couple scriptures here. In Isaiah, when he, when he, when he uses this image, imagery, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then in chapter 58 of Isaiah, verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. So Jesus is promising that they will be fulfilled and out of their hearts will come rivers of living water. So going back to our our scripture here in verse 39 at the end, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to that time. The spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Holy Spirit is what Jesus is describing. Okay, The Holy Spirit is God. What he is saying here is that God is going to have or he's going to seek a relationship with those who come to him. The Spirit is described in, in, in the New Testament as given in a special way to certain people. We have records of, of people who spoke in tongues or people who prophesy speaking in the name of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. People who did miracles and they cast out demons and did wonderful things that are called spiritual gifts or gifts of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what Jesus is describing here. The reason I say that is that Jesus opens this up to everyone, to to us. Remember in verse 37, he says, let anyone who is thirsty. And in verse 38, whoever believes in me. In the Old Testament, God would randomly choose certain people and give them the spirit. He would give them his spirit. And in the New Testament, God's spirit is offered to all who believe in him. This is the, the Holy Spirit choosing to live in us. We need to be careful because we are using we're using these human terms to describe God, um, that God is living somewhere. But those terms are the terms God chooses to describe a relationship. God is with us or he is in us 
or, and those ideas are about a relationship rather than a location. In John chapter 14, in verse 23, it says, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So here's the same language. The idea of making our home or living within. But here it's not the Holy Spirit that's described. It is Jesus and God. It's the Son. It's the Father. He puts the condition on us. If anyone loves me, this is the relationship we will have with him. Uh, We will be so close that it is as if our home is within him. Uh, It is a relationship that God wants to have, and and this is good news, because this means God is willing to live with us and in us in a relationship where he accepts us, despite the fact that we have sinned against him. He accepts us on the basis of the forgiveness offered through Jesus. He is offering us a relationship. It is true Uh, of the Father, and it is true of the Son, and it is true of the Holy Spirit, all three. The idea that God wants to live within us, or Christ lives in me, as Paul says, or that we live in the Father, and the Father lives in us, all of those are ways to describe a relationship in which we now stand to be blessed. Paul describes a little bit more about this idea um, of the Holy Spirit living in us in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And notice the idea of in in this text. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. Christ is in you. In is not describing a location. It's describing a relationship. We are either in the flesh or in the spirit. The spirit is either in me or not in me. Christ is either in me or not in me. Those terms are are also, they're used interchangeably. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if Christ is in you, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. This is amazing. If the Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, then the Spirit is in you. This relationship matters because if we are in this relationship with God, then we stand to inherit and receive blessing. So what is this blessing? In verse 9, He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And that's a big deal. If God is not in us or we're not in God, then we are not his. Moving on in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life. Because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So this is a guarantee. It's a promise of what is to come. What is to come is tied to the life-giving power of God 
If we're in this relationship with God, He will give life to our mortal bodies. In other words, we're back to our rivers of living water. We're back to life-giving power of God. God is offering a relationship in which we are so close that we can be said to be in one another. A mutual, what they would call indwelling, where we live in Christ and Christ lives in us and we live in the Father and the Father lives in us and we live in the Spirit and the Spirit lives in us because we are one with Him. That's what Jesus is offering. The the New Testament does not teach us that this is something that we feel in our Walt Disney-like feelings, right? What we are talking about when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a relationship which we are accepted by God and we are one with Him so that He is alive in us. So when Jesus cries out at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, He is saying, come to me, And you will have a relationship you could never have before. Come to me and you can have rivers of living water. There's life in me instead of death. There's freedom instead of slavery. There's hope instead of despair. Jesus offers this life-giving relationship. Going back to our scripture here in verse 38, it says, Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This speaks of the life-giving, this renewing power God has. Throughout the Bible, this is what God does. God is the author of life, and God gives life. God breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks to Ezekiel, do you remember? And he says, Son of man, can these dead bones live? God is the God who raises the dead. But Jesus takes it to an even higher level. Have you noticed how many times that Jesus, um, he talks about, life with himself. I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I give life to whom I will. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. I give them eternal life. I have the keys to death and Hades. When Jesus says, you will have rivers of living water flowing from within you, he's saying you can have all the power of God to make alive, to regenerate, to renew. He's saying you will he's saying he will he will give true life, eternal life to those who come to him for what is living water. Jesus uses the same idea in John chapter 4 with a different person. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. She has come she's come to him for to, or to the well for a drink and it ends up she ends up getting a lot more than she's bargained for. Starting in verse 10 it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And of course, she doesn't get it. But when Jesus is talking, when Jesus talks about living water, he's, he's, he's talking about water that will satisfy completely. He, he says in another place, um, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be 
filled. Jesus is painting. Okay, we've talked about painting our painting, right? Painting out these illustrations. Painting. He's painting our problem as human beings as a hunger or a thirst, a desperation for something we don't have inside of ourselves. No matter how many books we read, no matter who we vote into office, no matter who, no matter what we do in our in our relationships, we still have this hole within us that says, "This is not all there is. I am empty. What I am doing is worthless, and I need something more." And Jesus, Jesus says, "Yes, I'm the one who will quench that thirst. I will sate that hunger. I'm the one you need. And when you have me." You won't ever be thirsty like that again. And it doesn't mean that we won't have problems or needs. It doesn't mean that uh, we, we won't have issues in our life, right? But it does mean you won't need to go somewhere else, though. Jesus makes the promise he is the only one we need. When we read the New Testament, this idea is pictured as renewal. God's life-giving power gives refreshment and renewal to us. Like here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 starting in verse 22, to, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Or 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Rivers of living water within us do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may, be, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea of renewal in these passages is passive, okay? God renews. God himself renews. God is the life-giving force. When we are in relationship with God, we have what we need. If we were to sum up, I think, in a single word, what Jesus is offering, it would be growth. When we follow him, we have our needs met. And we begin to be renewed and strengthened and given life. To have what we need to be encouraged again, to become different people in a life-giving relationship. Last thing is that this living water is outward flowing. In the English Standard Version in John 7 verse 38, it says, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the same, same verse, but we're reading it in a different translation here. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice that he says out of his heart, not into his heart. And that's important. It's not just that Jesus is going to come in and do something to us. That's only part of it. He's also going to go outwards. Yes, once that work begins, something comes out, right? We become rivers of living water ourselves. We become a conduit. Do you know what a conduit is, Jonah? It's a BART word. It's electrical work. It's, it's where the electricity runs through these conduits. We become this conduit for God's work so that we can bless other people. Okay? We become a colony for God, a colony that God has now conquered, and we're now on his team, and we go conquer others. We become a kind of a satellite where God's work can advance even further. The idea of of a river of living water coming out of my heart means that as God works in me, I can be a source of blessing to those around me. He actually does the same thing 
when he talks to the woman at the well in verse 14 of John chapter 4, he says, But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's not just giving us water. He's going to make us a spring. He's going to make us a river, a river that is outward flowing. Don't just worry about drinking the water, right? He's offering something much grander than that. As believers, we have become a source so that other people will learn and be blessed because of us. And that is an awesome offer. Uh, God is not just going to meet our needs. He is going to use us to meet other people's needs. God is not just going to take care of our spiritual hunger. He's going to teach me how to help other people learn where to find the answer for their spiritual hunger. My work is done because God's work is at he, because God is at work in me. Now become a blessing to other people. So I want to show you a few places where that where that works real quick. Um, we'll look at a couple of quick examples of how we become a blessing to others when we have the Spirit dwelling in us. Galatians chapter six verse one, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves. You also may be tempted because I have the spirit in me. I can pick you up when you fall. I can help bear your burdens. I become a river of living water, a spring that will bless others. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he has done the work, but now that he has done the work, we can do the work. We are His handiwork. We are created for good works to bless others. And then Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. My favorite verse in the whole Bible. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church, His great wisdom now is not just good for us, but it works through us to others. And that's God's plan. When God does work, in our lives, it's not a dead end, and it's not just so that we can have some kind of a great experience of God's goodness. It is something that goes forward, something that goes outward. God does a work in us so that he can work in others. That's the way the gospel works. That is what Jesus was offering when he interrupted at the Feast of Booths, at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what Jesus was offering if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And I don't know about you, but I want that relationship Jesus described. Yeah. I want God to be alive in me. And I want to be in him. I want, to, I want the life that he offers. And I want to be someone who can bless others because of that. Rivers of living water can go. They can go on a Hallmark card. But it's something a lot bigger than that, I think. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.